You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Yadon Israel. Yadon is an educator, entrepreneur, writer, and founder of Literary Swag. A Bed-Stuy native, Yadon pursued his undergraduate degree at Pace University and earned an MFA in creative writing from the New School. It was during his time at the New School that he spotted a teen on the subway with a book in hand, making it look cool in a way that only New Yorkers can. Yadon snapped a photo and hashtagged it literary swag. This photo evolved into a movement, and eventually the Literary Swag Book Club was born. Today, this subscription service and monthly book club is made up of a collective of people with various experiences and cultural backgrounds who exchange ideas and come to understand one another through a mutual love of books and a respect for the people who read them. In addition to running literary swag, Yadon has written for a number of reputable media outlets and is also shaping other writers as an adjunct professor. So here's his story, and I hope you enjoy. Yadon, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank y'all for having me. Thanks Thank for being for here. Me. Appreciate it. Bringing good, calm energy, which I appreciate. Today. Oh, yeah, I have a daughter. So I woke up at six in the morning. Oh, so yeah. This so is you... like, uh, <laughs> I have to meter how much energy I give because I'm about to return to her. Gotcha. So that's, yeah. Understood. Yeah, understood. Yeah. Um, so we know you got to get back to your daughter. So let's jump into it. Yeah. Who is Yadon Israel? Um, who is Yadon Israel? I think, I mean, the way I think of it, Yadon Israel is now a father, an editor, an entrepreneur entrepreneur, a college adjunct professor, uh, and the founder of Literary Swag, a partner to my BM, Jillian Mojica, um, a friend to those who I consider friends, family, to the people I was raised with and who I grew up with. And that, like, I don't think, I don't know how else to think about it. Like, I, I am who I am. Not depend on who I'm around, but when I'm around a certain person, I become that version of myself. I think a lot of us, and I've had this conversation with Demarcus often, um, it's it's not that you're purporting to be someone you're not, but uh-huh. different environments require, diff- as you said, different versions of yourself. Right. You got to shape shift a little bit. Right. And I, I don't, yeah, I think that that's... I don't, like there's a there's this narrative that if you're not the same person in every space, then you're not being authentic. Mm-hmm. And I think that that mindset reflects this idea that you know who you are, or we know sure. who we are. I know who I am, and what I've learned, what I'm learning, present tense, is that I'm always learning who I am. Mm-hmm. So a lot of who I was was governed a lot by con- the conditions I grew up in. And so a lot of those conditions, when they're removed, if I'm not that way anymore, if you can remove a condition, then I understand, oh, that's not who I was. That's who I had to be to face a certain circumstance. Mm-hmm. I look at the, the parts or the qualities of myself and my character is like, it is who I am regardless of circumstance, but who I am in a circumstance is like how I channel my ver- like how I channel myself in a circumstance. Got it. So, yeah. So, I, like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, understanding that we... I, I think that one of the reasons why people don't like to think of themselves as changing is because I don't think we like to think of ourselves as, like, animals, like, mm-hmm. and think of ourselves in the terms of, like, we navigate our surroundings, like, the way an animal does, and not, like, quote-unquote savage, but, like, we're living, breathing things that are like at the mercy of a larger ecosystem sure and that's how i understand myself like i'm a part of the world not like it's not my world i'm a part of it Mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about the ecosystem that you grew up in um the 
ecosystem. I grew up in uh, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, in the 90s. So, I mean, the, the, the ecosystem was, uh, what's the word? It's not even diverse. I would say it was nuanced. It was like you had a family, I had a family never next door to me who had 16 kids, wow. eight boys, eight girls, all by the same mother and father. Um, and then on the right side of me, we had Jehovah Witness. And down the block, we had like the like the project housing. I used to, I grew up, the first place I called home in Bed-Stuy was Chauncey between Howard and Saratoga. So you had like the project house, a project building, like just one singular, like, you know, state-funded house. And then, you, so you had homeowners, you had renters, you had, it was just different values on the block. So I always, I grew up understanding that, like, there is no homogeny, mm -hmm. right? There's no monolith of existence. There are many ways to exist. There's many ways to be. And the real question becomes, how do you, uh, make space for the people that you live with as opposed to like I think a lot of the tensions on the block came from people trying to create the block the way they wanted it to, to they imagined it to be not the way it existed mm -hmm. and so for me that was that was like the ecosystem I grew up in was like how do you coexist with people that are different than you so that's what I like that was the ecosystem and like I just took that and just kept moving of like oh people are coming from different reference points people don't have the same upbringing and that's not not even that it's beyond fine it's a fact like mm -hmm. if whether it's fine or not it has nothing to do with the fact that like i have to navigate that world sure yeah so growing up in bed-stuy what did you see for yourself what do you mean in That's terms of your question. your future your career what you wanted out of life um at that time it wasn't i didn't really have a sense of a future not so much because i didn't like not some nihilistic like i didn't believe i was going to make it to 25 i just i think my life was very like what was in front of me mm -hmm. it was just getting not getting through the day but making the most of the day in front of me like I was blessed to have parents who were creative and so I would watch my father who was a musician like make album cover he had a Yamaha keyboard and he would like be in a room all day making music and my mother would be doing different things like you know whether it be writing or like singing praises to God and so I grew up around creative energy so I was always just what was in front of me whatever I needed and we didn't have the money for I would cre create so I remember one time I think third some before third grade mother I asked my mother if I get a PlayStation she was like, I'm not, but I don't have money to get you a PlayStation. But she never said I couldn't get one. So I like took some cardboard and I made a PlayStation on a cardboard. And I had like a little shoestring that tied the controller I made to the system or whatever. And that to me was a pivotal moment for me because that was my future right there. My future was my present. Anything I wanted in this world that I was told that I couldn't have or someone couldn't provide for me, I understood I could make it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, like the future to me wasn't, yeah, my future wasn't a, a, a hereafter thing. It was always what was in front of me. And it was like, here's a situation. How do I deal with it? And that's how I reach, that's how I think about the future. It's like, all right, what's in front of me now? Like I'm thinking 15 steps ahead and tripping over the step that's in front of me. Gotcha. I like that. 15 steps ahead and tripping yeah. over the step that's in front of you. Right. So, but we live, you know, we live in a culture, I think, where um, just by virtue of being in the U.S., where mm -hmm. it is about what does your future look like? Right. Like, wh what do you want to do with your life? Mm -hmm. What's the, the next step? Right? Yeah. So did you, was there ever a shift where you're like, I got to look a little bit further than the step You know, step I, would, I would just define where I'm at now is returning to everything I knew to be true before mm -hmm. I allowed myself to get sucked into what I believed I had to do. Sure. Um, I, I'm a, like now returning to what I did. Everything I'm doing now is stuff I did before mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Um, what happened was I wanted to win on, or I wanted to be a part of what my parents would call like, like Babylon or like the out there, like just 
being a part of the world and being worldly and being like we call it mixy. Mm-hmm. And being mixy means that like for me, I understand it as sacrifice and what I understand to be my core values and core beliefs. And I think that the core values is like where like our worth comes from. Mm-hmm. Like what I actually value, what I spend my time doing and what I want to spend my time doing. I was like growing up believing that, oh, okay. I remember the first, I remember I was a kid, like probably like nine, 10, probably a little older. And I remember I, wa- I knew I wanted to be a teacher from the time I was 10. And I was like, oh, I want to be a teacher. I remember somebody telling me, oh, they don't make money. Mm-hmm. Right now, I didn't have the language to know like, well, how much money do I need to live? Well, sure. I was just like, oh, okay. They don't make money. I didn't know what that meant. Like at the time, money was, we need something. Do we have money? to get it or not. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this whole like Roth IRAs and, and and putting money away and all these things are like, that's an understandable, like I understand that. But it was also the fact that that was the first response to me. It like took me on a, put me on a trajectory where now I was like, okay, so the value of what I want to do is predicated on how much money I make. But I still don't even know how much money you even need to make to live the life you want to live because no one asked me, well, why do I want to be a teacher? So it was like that first sort of thing of like the response to what I'm declaring I want I see for myself is well they don't make money not how much money do they make but they don't it's sort of like that's not valuable Mm -hmm. so you're not valuable so I was like all right I want to be a football player now then it was oh well you know statistically speaking that and it's like all right so what is going on like I'm picking the job that I feel like it's noble to me I enjoy helping people learn I enjoy learning that's not make that don't make money I want to be a football player they make money that's statistically improbable and it was just like the narrative of this lawyer doctor like it it was like it was just always corny to me Mm-hmm. Like it was very corny to me because it's like there are so many jobs that like I like stunt like stunt women like who makes the like the elastic on the like the elastic gasket on the refrigerator like there's so many different jobs that are out there and I understand that coming one of the things that coming from poverty means is that that space to be curious is believed to be non-existent I don't believe I believe that growing up in poverty makes us think that we don't have and so part of where my narrative of wanting to be something came out of this in, internalized narrative of lack yeah. that I was looking at what I didn't have and when I was looking at what I didn't have it was all material shit mm-hmm. it was never like things that I actually needed in my life because everything I needed I, it was the things I wanted I didn't have and that's what I mean by like alright this teacher thing is aligned with my purpose but this job thing is aligned with this sort of like wanting to be valued by a by a larger public and I chased that for like from that time from that time that I was told that teachers don't make money up until I decided that you know not even like I would say the last two years it was like wait I was already it was you know it's a long path and it's a winding road but at the end of the day like I feel like what I, th- I feel like all recognizing my self-worth has come to is just returning to those things that grounded me mm-hmm. and not necessarily things I was raised with because I like I have this I, I'll say this thing or I wrote in this essay I, I wrote that like there's a difference between how we're raised and how we grow up and what I mean by that is like there's the values that's that are just distilled in you by your parents but that's also like a projection of their values and their also their ambitions, their fears, their insecurities, their dreams and their desires. But then I, there's a growth, there's the way you grow up, which is the thing you un, and 
the thing you take to be true for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I understood for a long time that distinction. And then I got to a place where I started to trust what the world was telling me more than what I was living mm -hmm. personally. And I wanted the world to believe me as opposed to know that what I was doing was valuable and, and just accept that, oh, no matter what, people are going to talk something. People are going to say something. And I think that that's what I was trying to, that was a fundamental fact that I did not know back then was that no matter what, people are going to say something. Like I believe back then there was a way that I could do something or that was something I could do that would make people shut up or be like, oh, that's great. And then like, keep it moving. And there will always be someone who will say that, but there's always going to be somebody who's going to say, oh, well, you should be doing this. And I did not know that that would always be the case. Right. And when I realized, oh, that's always the case regardless, it's like, oh, okay. So I'm going to just return to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Because, and I, yeah. And I think sometimes too, often I, I talk to a lot of creatives, a lot of yeah. people who chose one path and then are now on another. And oftentimes we say, you know, I, I picked that, that first path for the money or for the, the validation or because mm -hmm. it was safe. And now I'm on this new path and I'm exploring my passions and my purpose. But what people struggle with and the new path is waiting for it to rise to a level where people say, oh, you made the right decision, right? right. So there, it's still a form of validation. It may not just be money. It may be notoriety. It may be something else. Right. But I have this conversation all the time with people who are like, when when are people going to see that I made the right choice? Like, right. You know, because it looks like they're in the struggle or it's not right. that big or, or what have you. Um, so I, I think the, the, the needing to find value doesn't always come in the money. Sometimes it just comes in adulation and people confirming that you you made a right choice. Right. But I think, also think there's a difference between like the way, like, and, and I think that living in this Western um, culture, our values, especially like if you, if you're from people, like people from you know the diaspora, um, and I've done a, enough. Not enough. No, it's never enough. But I've done my share of reading pre-colonial writing about like like what West Africa looked like and how it operated prior to colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so one thing, like, there's the narrative that, you know, we were divided and conquered, and that was the way we were as a, as a group of Black people, like, absconded from Africa and brought over to America. And I saw a map of pre-colonial Africa, and it was more divided, quote-unquote, than it was now, mm -hmm. right? These whole countries, Nigeria, but it was always tribes and small tribes and like growing up in Bed-Stuy, it's like, oh, Hancock don't go to Jefferson unless you have Jefferson don't go to Gates. And like the pathology of like the Western perspective is like, oh, we navigate like this because of them mm -hmm. as opposed to, no, there's something about the way we've always operated that's still true to the, how we, we operate, but we don't have the language to understand it outside of a pathology. Mm -hmm. And what I mean, what I, I say that to say, like, I think a lot of the ways we create and create, and I mean like Black Americans specifically, because I'm that's where that's my experience comes out of. I think a lot of our natural narrative and I think the American part is important because like I think the larger American narrative is the rags to riches story. Sure. And it's a story, right? So it's not necessarily true. So in that paradigm, you are not, there's no space for what if you aren't from rags, mm -hmm. right? What if the rags are the riches? There's no linear narrative where I can say before and after. There's no new and old. There's just what's in front of me and, and what's in front of me has always been there. And so like I've been even, I find it hard sometimes to talk about my life in a way that's non-linear and more circular and like we return to things that we were always always doing mm -hmm. it's just like that like for example it's i grew up in the city my whole life there's buildings i've walked past for 20 years never knowing what was inside until i had a reason to go inside of it then i understood that reason for that building being there but there was a part of me that pathologized that experience is like oh it's because i was black and we didn't have access to things it was like no i just 
it didn't have a function in my life at that time. So it was no reason to use it. And then when that function came, it was like, okay, now I have the use for it. So like, it's one of those things where once again, it's like pathologizing. It's like, there are certain things that was always there, but I had no way of understanding its use. So it, it just sat there. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, if you ever watch like documentaries, I'll watch these documentaries about rappers who, who blow up and then they'll show pictures of them when they were younger or and they'll be one of the rappers in the picture of all the rappers. And no one knew that person because they had no way to see that that person who was, was right. it was. And then you look back and go, oh, that person was always there. Damn, Jay was in, like, they look like these, like, you know, like these timeless beings because they're at all these moments and it's like no that person was always there we just didn't see them mm -hmm. and so that whole narrative of arriving or becoming it's like no it's like it's really about what we decided to pay attention to mm -hmm. it's not that that person just arrived it's like you just paid a, you just realized that that person was there but that person was like always in the room and the way we coming back to what you said about this whole idea of value we decide to pay attention to people when they have when when the culture decides they're valuable i.e. they're making it the type of money that we want to make it's like the type of you money that says I don't have to work for anybody. I don't have to. I'm no longer part of an ecosystem. I create my own ecosystem. But it's like, no, you're just creating a smaller ecosystem and a larger one. And I think that that's a very American idea to think that we self, we're self self-invented or we created or we founded. And like, I think that that's a very Western thing. I think that our core is understanding that we're, we're a part of a culture. So we just contribute mm -hmm. and our contributions are a part of the thing, but we don't own the thing because we are. That's not the way our people like instincts, like from like we don't operate like that and i think that that's why we drive culture largely because we don't see ourselves as drivers of it we see ourselves as vessels for it mm -hmm. so we allow it to move through us and and when i think something happens i think something dies that a part of that culture dies when we shift from understanding ourselves as vessels of it to drivers and now we're trying to say oh like i remember being in high school and being like oh we going to bring back this just to see if we could bring it back and it would never catch because we were not just allowing culture and allowing ourselves to be a part of what was going on we were trying to control it we were trying to curate it we were trying to like have like we were trying to westernize it we were trying to like come in with it and colonialize some shit that belonged to nobody mm -hmm. as opposed to just existing in it and so like i try what i'm trying to do now is like break the break the narrative habit of telling the story in the American way where it was like I was here and now I'm there and what's different from there than here what was different than from here to there is that I have all these things that I didn't have before and I for me it's like what happens if I change that narrative from like oh we always had love and happiness and joy and this is all we're doing all I'm doing is really sustaining mm -hmm. what I have what I've always had because what I have you can't put a dollar sign to so can I ask you a question sure all right so I asked my students this as a way to think of, I had them to read a Toni Morrison doc I mean Toni Morrison essay um called I think the price of wealth the cost of care and in the, the essay it was a speech that was really about what do we care about and how do you know what you care about and I asked my students um what's the thing in your life not a person or a relationship but what's like a physical thing or a thing in your life that you would take no amount of money for Thing in my life that I would take no, no amount, amount of money, money for. for. And it can't be people. My grandmother's Bible. Why? Because it's a sentimental value right. to me. It, there's a connection to, to someone who's not there anymore. Right. Um, and while she lives here, right, right. I'm, I'm standing on her shoulders. It's a physical thing that I hold close right. that takes me back to a, a time and space when she was here. And also, um, it reminds me and it sustains me that this is a person that prayed for me and covered me. Yeah. Um, and that's what carries me on the difficulties. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, um, mine's wasn't a Bible, I'll be honest. Mine's <laughs> was my wardrobe. Mm -hmm. But the reason why is more so because like the time and energy that it took for me 
to find every piece. Mm -hmm. Like it took years, took me years to do that. It's like when I understood that, like what the like that the currency and like you, it's funny, like you, you said, you know, sentimental value. And I think that that's how we think of things. It's like when it's not a monetary value, we like immediately say mm -hmm. like it's the like it's not really of the same value of money in a way. And yeah. As opposed to just saying no, this is a value. This is I value this, right? And so for me, it was like once again moving out of the pathology of feeling ashamed because like my value wasn't oh like you should be investing in stocks and all those things. It's like okay, like those things are things that I might identify has value. But what I value are different things. Mm -hmm. Like my mother used to make my clothes for the first 10 years of my life. So my connection to clothes is very different. And this is the whole irony is like I would go to school with like basically I had a, a mother who was a tailor. I was going yeah. to school with tailor made clothes and I would go to school like, man, I want that Sean John, man. I want that Rockaway because that's what everybody else was doing. But then it was like their connection to the clothes was very like they would, you know, throw it away. And I and I recognized like when I started getting those clothes, I didn't have the same relationship to it. I wasn't trying to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Like granted, when mother was making my clothes, I was trying to destroy it for a very different reason because I was trying to get out of it. Yeah. And I wanted like, I, how can I communicate to you that I don't value this? I value what they have. And I got it. And I'm like, there's really no value in these clothes. Not because like the name the brand of it wasn't valuable, but it was like, yo, this is really what, this is like a one size fit all thing. And it's very hard to see yourself or it was very hard to see myself in what everyone else was wearing. It was like, I see other people more than I see myself in these things. So it's like when the Jordans come out and like you, I could take the train and I know like, I'm gonna see at least 50 people with these things on their feet or whatever. So for me, it was like, okay, you know, looking at those things that like, okay, what would, what would I take money for? What would I give? up and I was so at a point before that so ready to everything was for sale mm -hmm. and that was like that was the fact that everything was for sale at a point in my life spoke to what I how little I felt I was worth so what person. do you mean when you say everything was for sale everything was for sale like so for example like you know like some things I would do like I, something I would say no for because I would because it was a no is like well we'll pay you oh okay mm -hmm. what changed the money like if the money was the only thing to change the situation to for me now that's not a good Time. Like if I would say yes to it, if I would say no to it off the rip, then why am I saying yes to it now? Because of the money. Right. And it's like, un, un, like now I don't understand. Now I'm like at a place where I'm fine saying no to things, even if it means I lose money, because it's like if money is the only thing this thing can afford me, but there's no value in it, I'm ultimately losing in the long run. And so, that's for me, like the real long term investment is like this doesn't bring value into my life. So what do you say to the person who hears this, especially mm -hmm. those who are creatives and trying to choose right. what might be deemed? the non-traditional path and they're like, Yadon, I hear you, but I need the money. Right. I think that once again, it's like, it depends on like, what type of money do you need to live the life you live? Do mm -hmm. you need money to get you through what you're doing or do you need this this imaginary number that you're working on, right? So like the whole time, like when I said I wanted to make money, I never knew what that meant. Like I never actually knew like, what does it mean to make money? What is the amount of money that one can say I'm making money? Mm -hmm. How much money is that? How much, what is the real life of a person making money look like? Right. Like I'm doing the things where I'm filing my own taxes. Like I grew up getting W-2s. All my taxes was filed for me. I went to Jackson Hewitt. We got the refund. It was like, now it's like, oh, I, oh, money. Right. Right. That relationship changes and it's giving me a real relationship with money. So I'm not saying like, I don't need money. What I'm saying is 
I don't need to say yes to everything because of money. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the temptation is, especially as an artist, that getting that yes is very, hearing the word yes is an addictive thing because as a creative part of the impulse is creating out of this feeling that you're getting told no a lot. People are telling you what you can do, what you can't do. And when you create out of that, no amount of money is going to fix that feeling because it's always going to be the next yes and the next yes. And what I saw was I was saying so, I was saying yes to so many things that I wasn't actually giving myself the capacity to be present in a lot of them, which is why like I would do a lot of things. And then when it was done, it was like, I couldn't even think about it anymore because it was merely the next thing. So it was all these things that I did that I was never present for in the same way. Whereas now I'm not on this, like what is like a monk where I'm like, oh, that money is not what I want to touch. Like I got a daughter, I got rent, I got things like everybody else. But I think that it's, that's that very like, oh, I'm gonna reduce everything down to money. Whereas like, what's the value? Like if money is the only value, then it really just speaks to that's what you value right now, which mm -hmm. is fine. But understand that that value system comes with its own implications. And I don't know what the particular person's life would be like, so I can't make a cookie cutter answer. But if, I think that when your life looks very particular, when what you when the main thing you value in your life is money. Mm -hmm. I have a respect for money, but I don't like value money itself because money is a tool, right? It's like it does something else. Like if money didn't do anything, we wouldn't value that. Mm -hmm. And that's what it comes back down to. It comes back down to currency, which is very different, once again, than money. Like, it's like, what has currency? I grew up on Section 8 welfare. Like, having money, and I think that that's also what changes my relationship with money, is like not having it, but still being able to live a full life, still being able to eat every day, still being able to navigate and create. The idea that I need money to do anything is a very hard concept for me. Like, I, I understand I need money to sustain in a certain way, but like this whole idea of like, once again, like I need millions and billions of dollars for what? Like, that's still an abstract idea to me. Mm -hmm. So I think that money comes into your life. And I, I heard, like, who was his name? Kevin Hart had the best ex best explanation for, like, a private jet because he was on Breakfast Club and they were like, oh, you got a private jet? And he was like, no, 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 no. You need to understand, like, I'm at a place in my life now where the type of things I'm doing necessitates me having a private jet. Like, I have meetings where, like, commercial flights don't move at my schedule. So the private jet is a way for me to get around based on what my life looks like. And I feel like where I was before is... I prioritizing the money was trying to create this life, trying to get the things that create the life. Like if I get a private jet, then I'll create a life that needs a private jet as opposed to like, no, you create a life. You live a life that because of the life you're living, these things become necessary. You understand their value now. Like, okay, I know why I need this as opposed to like, yeah, I got, you know, I got an assistant. Why? Mm -hmm. You only get two emails a day, but it like it, <laughs> but it looks good. Like it's like, oh, it makes you look important, but do you need one? And so it comes to, for me, it's like an artist feeling, which is a necessary feeling of needing money versus like understanding what they need the money for. I think those are two different things. And I think that understanding what artists need the money for, I think is a shift from just identifying money to like, okay, how do I, what's the best way to get the money? Right. Because I can tell you, honestly, like there are essays I've signed over not knowing my rights as a writer and like publications who like have full rights for a $50 check because right. I needed them. Like I needed $50. And it's like there was many ways I could have made that $50. I had a romanticism of how I wanted the money to look, where I wanted the money to come from. And because of that, it's like I've sold off something that was a value to me. So like, you know, if I want to go write a public, like I run to go write a book, most times, more times than not, you ask these people for your rights to publish. They'll give you the permission. But it's like, but what if, like, what if those moments they don't want to do that? Mm -hmm. Now your stuff is held up. Like you, you know, watching this whole thing with Taylor Swift and her record label, and it's like people value money until they start to see, oh, my master's was valuable, my publishing was, my stuff, the things that I created was valuable. 
So like, I think that that's just like the, once again, that narrative of like, you're in that place where you need money. And I think that that's always the case, but it's like, what do you need it for? Mm -hmm. And I think understanding what you need it for helps you understand that the money is once again, still a tool that you use as opposed to like something you allow to yourself to be used by. Right. Because people could dangle that carrot over you and say, well, give you this. And it's like, what did you drop to grab? Right. Mm -hmm. And then what did they pick up because you dropped it? And then they hold that over you and then you're buying back the thing that they like it's and they're charging you double what they paid you. Right. And I think when people make those types of decisions, we see it happen all the time in right. music and other industries. It's not even always that they fell for the smaller check just because it was a check. Sometimes it's just it's also the notoriety. If, if people say we can bring fame to you, I've, I have worked mm-hmm. and advised artists and people who are entertainment. Right. And I've said, you know, this is a terrible deal, but I'm getting exposure. Right. So so sometimes I think people make the decision knowing that the money isn't right, but because they they are seeking an audience mm-hmm. and they feel like this deal is going to give them that audience, they'll take it anyway. You know, all right, like this is the English teacher in me, but like even that phrase, I'm getting exposure, right? Like the verb in that sentence is am, mm-hmm. right? Versus like who's exposing you. So it's a passive, it's a sentence that like is framed actively because the subject who is the person saying they're getting exposure is framing it as if they're in control of that exposure mm-hmm. as opposed to someone is giving me exposure, meaning that exposure is contingent upon what that person wants to show about you. Yeah. So you're not even in control of that exposure. And, I, and of course, you don't learn this without going through it. So I don't even believe that, like the one thing I feel like that's not moot about advice, but it's like, I think advice is like a way for people to have language for when a thing happens, a way to see like, oh, this was going to happen. This is the way it plays out because people still got to take them. Like they got to catch their fate. They got to get their fates caught. Like I've watched so many interviews and still made the same mistake because it's like, that's a mistake for me to make because I have to learn from the way it looks for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of what I think sometimes the obsession with like reading and watching other people's stories is like, how do I like hack the game? And it's like, like this is- blueprint. Right, yeah. It's like, how do I find this way to not do, how do, how do I not learn really? Right. So it's like, how do I like create this way of living where I'm not as curious, which means I'm not failing, which means I'm not learning. But then because I'm not learning, I'm not growing because I'm not changing and I'm, I'm not like looking at the situation and go, okay, we've done that 12 times and it was, let's try to. 13 times a different way. It's like, how do I not try 13 times? How do I come out on the first one and just kill it every time? And it's like, that is like any, there's like every profession has a language for like, that's not success. It doesn't mm-hmm. count as success until you feel like you have to fail because you have to see what was it that you need to do that you're not doing. And I think that like in that that mindset, because what I hear is more of a mindset about like who has control over your destiny more than what they're getting. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I don't have to think about myself because these people got me. They're going to take care of me. And that's the language, right? It's like the language of, oh, well, we got this. Oh, we'll do it. Oh, and so it's like, okay, I don't got to think about my taxes. I don't got to think about my house notes. I don't got to think of, I don't have to think about myself. Mm-hmm. I could just like go out and do shit. I could just not think about myself as much as possible. And I think that that narrative also is like people realizing that their lives are in shambles because they're not in control of it. They've put all these people in control of their lives. Like T-Pain even saying like, you know, I I didn't haven't seen my kids in years because I was on the road so much because the exposure and wanting to get my name out there. And it's like, but for who though? Like who's like to who does it matter that like, who doesn't, who, like, why does it matter to you that these people that you don't know and we, you know, we've been saying it interchangeably, like people, but who are these people? Mm-hmm. Not like this idea of people, but like, are these people you actually know and care about or whatever? And so like coming back to the value system, like what's rooted me in my whole like literary swag 
whole ethic of like bringing clothes to fashion is like, that's what I was doing when I was growing up. It was always clothes or fashion, but I was never in my own self brave enough to, not brave and also not knowing like, oh, people are gonna pop shit regardless. Like they're gonna be like, oh, you think you cool? <laughs> oh yeah, yes, I do. Like, but before I was like, why you gotta talk to me? Why you can't just leave me alone? And it's like, if you in this world as a human being, you're not gonna get left alone because you're in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also money is a way to kind of create that barrier between people in the world where it's like, they don't, don't, don't regard me the way you regarded person. Don't ask me questions, don't talk. Like, so that whole way of moving is a way to like, kind of keep people from reminding themselves that they are part of something larger. Right. And I think that and at a sense, that response to money is the thing that people don't like the most because it reminds them that they need other people. And I think I'm I'm also one of those people that understand we need people. We need relationships to live because once again, we're social creatures. We don't survive by ourselves. But when you have a narrative like the American narrative of the self-made individual, it puts you in direct contention with the reality of life. Like we need each other to survive and exist. And then it's like, well, no, I did it by myself. And it's like, well, how does that fare with what we know is true about living things, living organisms, right? So I think that the whole idea, when I say you don't need money, I'm not I'm not even saying you don't need money. I'm saying like, understand where your values are when you accept money. Mm -hmm. If money is the only thing you're doing it for, understand that that's what you're doing it for. But I feel like sometimes artists get unrealistic and they accept the money, but then they want, oh, I want to do this. It's like, no, the money dictated that you became an employee. You got paid for something. Mm -hmm. So if they're telling you to do it a certain, you got paid to do it a certain way, do it the way they're telling you to do it. It's a job now. But if you want the creativity, you got to accept that that's going to look like maybe less money on the front end, maybe more of an investment, right? You're investing more into your thing, which means you're getting less on the front end because you're, and I, I looked up the word entrepreneur recently because I never looked it up. I just mm -hmm. like always heard it as a term. And I, the, the definition of entrepreneur is the person who assumes risk in a business or an endeavor. And I was like, oh, like that really is like, how do you live your life entrepreneurial? It's like to be in charge of it, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, if something goes wrong, you're in charge of it. Like, it's like, if I get my W-2 and something's messed up, it's like, I got to go to my boss, go and have them fix it. But like, well, something's wrong with the W-9 or whatever. I don't know what the term, I don't know. What, I don't know if that's the right, I'm still learning the forms, but like the one you do for self-employed, mm -hmm. if something go wrong, they coming for you. 1099. You, 1099, right? You, they coming for your receipts, not for your boss's receipts. But I think that, that re having that relationship to my own life where I like, I understand, I'm under, I'm learning and I'm curious enough to learn about how does money come in and out of my life? Wait, I spent how much on what? I got to hold myself accountable for that. Wait, I got to make an adjustment. And I feel like people don't want to make their own adjustment. They want their lives to be adjusted for them. So it's like, how can I stay the way I am, but yet have someone else do something where I feel like I'm changing? So if I just made more money, I used to believe that all the time. Like the reason why my life is the way it is, is because I'm not making as much, I'm not making more money. And yes, and wealth inequality is a very real thing. And I should be making more money, but also what would I do with spending? Like I wouldn't save mm -hmm. it. I wouldn't like invest. I would just buy more of the things that I bought, but not with the money I already have. So what I began doing in addition to, and I think that like, so F. Scott Fitzgerald has this quote that says the, the, this, the sign of a first rate intelligence is a mind that's able to focus on two contradictory things at the same time and still be able to function. And it's like the walk and chew gum thing. It's like, okay, I can understand wealth inequality and fight for that and also make more responsible moves financially, as opposed to thinking, well, what's the point of being financially responsible if those people at the top, quote unquote, aren't financially responsible? And it's like, are you, am I modeling myself after a person I identified as not as part of the reason why I'm in the situation I'm in? Or am I looking at this is not a healthy, sustainable practice that anyone should have? And I'm going to make those changes regardless and fight for the thing at the same time. Not because 
I want to be on top of that paradigm, but I really understand that the paradigm is not healthy, mm-hmm. right? The whole idea of like the, you know, just like the whole idea of not being in charge of my life and then using a proxy of being in charge of other people's lives as a way to feel control of my own life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really, to me, where like the Western uh, capitalist structure comes from. It's like, I want to control other people, but I don't want, I don't want to be responsible for them, but I want to control them. And I think that like what my relationship with money has taught me from when I didn't want to understand it, I didn't want to know, I didn't like just here, take it. I don't just figure it out for me. Now I'm like, no, 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 let me see. Walk me through this. Help me understand because I want to understand my life and I want to understand, okay, I might say I don't value this, but if I spent X amount of money here, then I value that. So I got to look at my value system. Is this what I really value? Because I might subconsciously value it and I know it, but if I'm not taking my own inventory of my life, then I have no way to change the relationship. I have no way to change my own relationship to my life. Mm-hmm. And that's really what literary swag has been in my life is like the the anchoring factor of what I value. I value intelligence. I value style. I, I value thought. I value substance. And when I'm thinking about my, the book club that I run, it's like, okay, I'm taking money. And if I know the money is for the book club, then it's like, no, I'm not just taking money anymore. I understand what the bigger picture is. So if I take money and I do the, and I do something that somebody like, oh man, you didn't do this right. It's like, I know what I'm really, I know what my values really are. I know my priority is. I'm like, okay, this money is going to be going here. I'm not taking the money because it's a check. I'm taking a check because I understand a check could do this for that. Mm-hmm. And so my relationship to it is different, but also I'm willing to also say no, because if the price of that check, right, I might get a $10,000 check, but if the price of that is about to be 20, I'm about to be in a hole for 10. So I'm about to be in a hole. So it's like, that's not worth it. So it's also coming up and looking at what's worth it versus just, okay, there's money. It's like, okay, but what's, what are they asking for, for what they're given? Right. And a lot of times because we don't, and then because I didn't know my own worth, yeah, but a lot of times because I don't know my own worth, I just took what they were given as all the value as mm-hmm. opposed to like, okay, they're asking for that. They're giving this, but they're asking for too much. And it's like the more every time I think the project is done, it's like, but can you do this one thing? It's like, yo, like this thing is never going to finish. Right. And once again, I think that every artist has to go through that. Every I think every artist goes through it and has to go through it where they where they and not just artists. I think human beings go through it where you just realize you have to just take control of your own life. You can trust your parents. You can trust everyone else with it. And I don't think I think that even with the most trustworthy person, what we all see is like I have to if I want my life to go the way I want it to go. I got to be in charge. I got to mm-hmm. just take control. I got to like be in charge of my own life. I got to put myself as the subject of my own verbs in like the English, like I am doing, I the subject and doing the verb as opposed to like the verb is being done to me by somebody else, but I'm framing it as if I'm the one doing it. So I'm getting exposure as opposed to like, even if I'm allowing them to give me exposure, I mean like, even though I'm using them as a, I understand that they're a tool in helping me get what I want to get, but that still comes back to what do I really want? Why do I want it? And that was, those were the questions that I wasn't asked. If we go back to like that first time I asked to be a teacher, I mm-hmm. told that person I wanted to be a teacher. And instead of asking, well, why? Which would have renewed, like, res- like would have made me go, well, why do I want to be? And turn inward, it was like no money. I went outward. Mm-hmm. As opposed to if you would have asked me, well, why do you want to be a teacher? It's like, yo, I love helping people. Like one of the things I loved about being a teacher was I would love how the teacher would explain something and nobody, like not a lot of students wouldn't get it. And then I would explain it and they'd be like, yo, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I understood who I was talking to. And a lot of the people I was taught by didn't understand that. And so I was like, how different would our education experience be if the person talking to us was someone we understood? Because those are people that we see every day. And how much would I see myself in my education? Because the people that 
that they don't not even just look like me, but they're coming from the understanding that I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And they're teaching me in that language to tell me that that language that I'm learning is valuable. And to not be taught in your own language is to be taught that you're not valuable because it's basically teaching me like, oh, in order to succeed, quote unquote, I got to leave everything behind. So not only am I getting this this language about money, but also what's valuable is everything that I'm not. Mm -hmm. And so that also that from that that education process sets us on that trajectory of leaving our values and taking on the values of a dominant culture. And I think we've seen like those values of a dominant culture don't necessarily help us. Like, and of course, there's always going to be the exceptions to the rule, quote unquote. But it's like the exception proves the rule. It doesn't excuse it. Right. Right. And also it's like, I also don't know what the interior lives of those people who are used to be the exceptions look like, like the Obamas, the Oprahs, the Jay-Z's. Like, I don't know them as human beings. So I know them as figureheads. So yeah, it's easy to say, oh, well, this person did this. It's like, that's what they did. But what does that full thing look like? Mm -hmm. And so for me, once again, when I try to talk about my life, I try to talk about it in a way that like defies the, the 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 linear, which is first you do this and then this happens and then that happens. It's like, no, you do this and you're always doing that, right? Like I'm doing the, like every month with book club, book club doesn't look like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But that's what I understand to be the, uh, that's the work is making it happen. It's not getting to a place where I'm like, oh, it's going to happen because I know that once I get there that I've treated an organism like an object. And once I treat an organism like an object, I don't feed it, I don't water it, I don't tend to it. And then it dies because I'm not, I don't receive it the same way. I'm not going to it and checking on it. I'm like, oh, it's a chair. The chair will be there when I get back. It's like, if it's a living thing, you know that living things live. So it might not be there. So that relationship with what I've what what I've helped create and all I mean by create is just gave it a name. But like book clubs have existed before me. Rooms of resistance have existed before me. Like all of these things have existed before me. I just put it in a framework that I understand, that other people understand through my understanding. But it's like people come back because what they're going to is what they've come from. Mm-hmm. Like their family tables, their their the, the cookouts. Like the vibe is everything I've cultivated is what I've come from. So it's like there's nothing new I've made in that room or any room. So you've mentioned book club. You've mentioned yeah. the term literary swag for the audience. Mm-hmm. How do you describe what is literary swag? So literary swag is just a cultural movement that is intersection of fashion literature to make books accessible to people who don't have like a way in. And I, what I mean by that is like in this culture, there's a strict dichotomy between if you're smart, you're smart. If you're fly, you're fly. You can't really be both. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's and it's not something I believe, but I, I see the the narrative. Get, I see the narrative get performed a lot. Like oh, like she's she looks good. I didn't know she was smart. Or like oh, son, you for a smart dude, you like you you fly and you smart. Like they say it like you can't be both. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to that narrative of the person being one thing as opposed to we are multiple possibilities. We are different things for what the situation allows. Like if I'm in a library, of course I'm gonna be quiet because I'm in a library. But then if I'm in a party and I'm turning up, it's like, boy, you was just in the library, quiet. Now you, it's like, so what What are we, what are we saying about things? And I think that that need to want to be one person buttoned up is that not wanting to be curious about ourselves and not wanting to learn about ourselves. And, I, and for me, literary swag is the manifestation of that by like the physical representation of style, but then like that internal contemplation of thought, like into in, like engaging with books. And I think that there's something special that happens when you engage with a book because you're not being fed an answer. You have to think about questions. I wonder how the book is going to end, but you don't answer that by jumping to the end because you get the end out of context of how it got there. So it's like, it's about process. And so 
literary swag is the cultural movement that is really about like taking the whole energy of hip hop, which is that is a it's a cultural thing. Everybody can contribute to it and bring it into literature, a space that's historically been about the individual, meaning the writer. The writer is the person that the, the culture is seen through. Whereas with hip hop, you understand or at least I understand the hip hop, the friend, the tenements and the, the tenants of hip hop through the DJ, the rapper, the producer, the radio personality, the dudes in the barbershop, the people, like it's the people breakdancing, the people bootlegging, like it's a culture, everyone contributes. But with writers, it's like the writer, the editor, the publisher, the readers are not even really a part of it. And they're like, they're not even seen as being understood mm-hmm. as a real thing. Like a lot, so many writers, when they thank people on stage, it's, Besides the fact that they don't thank God, which is his own thing, they don't have to thank God, they don't want to. But it's like, they don't thank their readers. They mm-hmm. think the editors, they think that. And it's like, yo, like, the readers sometimes never make it into a speech. And I did a thing where I've, like, listened to, like, so many speeches, and I'm like, so it's like that, who do you, you know, not, not who do you do it for, but it's like, you, like, I think it's, it's forgotten that a book is written to someone. Right. And that relationship to be removed, Literary Swag Book Club, is reminding not just the literary world, the relationship, but it's also like, I think reminding readers, because sometimes readers don't feel seen enough that it's like, nah, this is, we have a space that's just for us. We don't even need the writer to be here to talk about the book. We just gonna be here. So it don't even matter if the writer don't show up. We don't need the writer to show up. The writer gave us what they wanted us to have, the book. But we take it from here, right? And that's right. How many of, you know, how many, I know I didn't go to my first concert until I was in my 20, like late teens. But it, I wasn't any less connected to the culture because I never went to a concert. It was like I, we made our own concerts on the block, like playing the music on the, on the, in the summer and things like that. We, we put the music to use. And so for me, it's like book club is also my way of putting books to use. Like the purpose of a book is not to be at a bookshelf on a, at a store. It's a purpose is so that someone on that in that store can take it home with them and give it to their family and their friends and give it a life. And that's what I think book club does is it gives these books that people often think is these these like dead objects a life because it lives through the people who read them and pass them on. So like that's really what literary swag is. It's like I would say I would say like literary swag is like the hip hop of what I'm doing. It's the it's the larger cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And then like book club is like a vertical within hip hop. So it's like a way that hip hop looks. So like rap is a way that hip hop looks as opposed to like well hip hop is the fashion. Hip hop is the dance hip hop is the, it's like it's all of it is like there's parts of it too but one is all night and, and like all of it but no no one thing is all of it but like all of it is and com- all of it encompasses everything. So, like, who was it recently? Like, Dapper Dan is literary swag. Mm-hmm. Just like, like Dapper Dan is hip-hop, Dapper Dan is literary swag, because I read that man's book, and I was surprised how much he read as a person because so much of the narrative was him as a hip hop pioneer and, and, and fashion designer that it was really, once again, limiting him to one way to be. So when I read his book and how much reading he's doing, I'm like, yo, this dude was literary swag before there was a name for it, mm-hmm. which is to say that I didn't create this. This was always here, right? So that's what literary swag is, is like the things we see every day that we don't think is possible. That's really like the larger language for it. It's like, oh, you see a kid that's smart and fly, that's possible. Like you see a per- you see people getting dressed up for a book on a Wednesday night, that's possible. Like 20 years ago, I had never heard of somebody going, getting dressed to go to a book club. I had never heard of somebody making money off a book club. And by making money, I don't mean getting rich, but making money to sustain what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that exists now. 
And that's the, for me, like that's what's beautiful about it is it shows people the possibility of like, there's so many ways to exist and sustain yourself in this world. So that to fall into this narrative of that, what you want to do, can't, you can't do it because it doesn't get X. It's like, well, what, what is, well, why, right? Like, what is the thing that you're telling me I need to do? And what do I need in order to live the life I want to live? And then based on what I need, then I'm going to go about living my life on, on my terms. Mm-hmm. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Time when I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I think, all right, so it was a day where, uh, trying to think of a particular one recently, it's, it's been, you know what? You know what I'll say? Because I think a lot of that is like the extraordinary get. I was up four o'clock in the morning. I, I like on my, my, my Wednesdays, I teach three classes. I teach a class at New School, I teach a class at City College, and I teach a class at City College. So I teach an undergrad at New School, undergrad at City, and then an MFA level at what's his, um, City. And it was four in the morning. Like, that was the week. This was a week my daughter was, she had the flu. No, she had the flu. She had a cold. She had her first cold. And it was like nobody was getting sleep. And I was exhausted. And I was like exhausted. Book club was the same night. And I was just like, I'll, usually what I do is just like show, show, soldier through it. Like, I'm going to just do the class. I'm going to do the two. I'm going to do the three classes and make it the book club. And then I'll breathe later. But I was just like, you know what? What like, what am I doing this for? Like, we, we actually have that we can miss a class or whatever. And like, even with these provisions, I'm still not giving myself the permission right. to take the, like, take a moment. Right. You don't got to cancel the whole day. So what I did at four in the morning, I sent out the email to the first class. Listen, class ain't happening. Um, I'm just tired. And I could have lied. I could have made up mm-hmm. something where it was like some extraordinary excuse about why I'm making the lie. Yo, I'm just tired. Boom. First class done. Then I was leaving to go to the second class that day. And then daughter was going through what she was going through. And it was like, you know what? Instead of me trying to ignore, nah, second class, listen, daughter going through something. Class canceled. But here, this is what we, this is what I want y'all to do in Lou. I made it to the last class and I made it to book club. And what I learned in that moment, to me, that was extraordinary because it was admitting what I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that narrative of what's extraordinary is like us just taking on all this stuff, all this weight, even now we even if we can't shoulder it to just prove that like, oh, we've we work and we out here, we right. hustling. And it's like, that's not a sustainable practice because eventually it, you break. And then for what? And not because of, for the larger thing is like, you can take a day, you can take an hour, you can take 10 minutes. And the narrative I was out, was born out of was like, you don't have a minute, you don't have right. a second to spare. Every moment counts. It does. And also the moments we don't take count as well. And so that was like, no, I need to get some sleep. No, I need to sit with Shorty to make sure she good. Like this one class ain't about to change the whole thing of your education. Right. And at the same time, even if it is, this is where I decide where my, like, I need this time. Because if I'm showing up for everybody else, but not for myself, then I'm not really present for anything. And that to me was a moment where I was extraordinary. And it, like you asked me this question last year, it would have been some day where I was out there slashing like, oh, I did this. Mm-hmm. I, I did 20 things in a day. And it was like, no, nah, I did, I did, I, quote unquote, I did two. But what I really think is I did four because it's like those two times when I sent that email to say what I couldn't do was also doing something. Right. And I think there we also have to have building a narrative and a, and a, not even a narrative, we have to build in a value for people who can acknowledge when they can't show up. Absolutely. Because what I used to do is I just wouldn't tell anybody. I would just like disappear. And I think that like, you know, a lot of people don't show up because they feel like they have to be 100% to 
to show up. And like, how many days do we get that? How many days do we come to work inspired? It's like, not a lot. But if we only worked on the days we expired, that would be a very empty schedule for some people. Mm -hmm. And so it's like coming to the, coming to like something with, with a practice and a discipline, but then also coming to it, also understanding like, there's going to be days where like, I just don't have it. And it might not be all right for you that I don't have it, but it, nah, it's, it's enough for me. I don't right. have it. I'm not coming in today. And if, and because I know my value, you try to fire me or make me feel like I'm less than, okay, that says more about your values than it does about mine. Cause I know I'm valuable, which is why I know I need that day. Because yeah. if I don't need that day. I can't bounce back. Right. The ball doesn't bounce up. If it doesn't drop, I need to bounce back. I need to take my time. And I'm not taking the time you're giving me. I'm taking the time that I'm giving myself. Because like I said, the schools tell you, you can miss two days. Right. But I still wasn't taking them because like, nah, it's already in the semester. And it's like, no, bro, like just take the, take it. Mm-hmm. You need to take that for yourself. So that was a that was an example of a day that I was extraordinary. And we do talk about that on, on this show a lot yeah. that. Of course, the the crux is maximizing potential and blazing your own trail. But that also means rest and giving your body and your mind and your spirit a chance to recharge and being mature enough to say, I need this. And that is okay. I I might give you an explanation, but I actually don't even know you one because this is what I need for me. So I'm watching this come up on the show more and more. And I'm glad you chose that example because one of the conversations I've been having with people um, before we let you get out of here is um, we're coming to the end of the year and all these memes about us, the end of the decade and all this other stuff. And everybody's like, what what have I accomplished? I I was trying to do this X. Y and Z, and it's about to be a new year. Well, my my thought on that is it's about to be a new year. Like, okay, and it, you know, yes, the decade is ending. Yes, the year is ending, but that is not a finite period for anything. Right. So just do what you need to do for you. And and Demarcus and I talked about this in our last duo episode, like how we're on like chill mode. Of course, we're we're doing what we need to do to sustain the brand. Yeah. um, And what we're trying to build. Right. But we are not running 100 miles an hour anymore. Right. You know, it's like, this is our time now because we need it. And we yeah. felt that burnout and it was serious and seeping into other areas of right. our lives. Right. And, and and like the other thing I'll add to that on on the on what you're saying about this whole idea of like the year and what have I done is like that comes once again out of that language of lack. They're yeah. looking at what could I, what could I, tell people I've done that they will be like, ooh, <laughs> Right. Right. And it's like the days where I feel most exhausted are days when I'm with my daughter, just with her. Mm-hmm. Right now it's like, okay, like I go on. Yeah. Like, it's like, I'm not sitting there posted up that pitch, like those pictures, they get a lot of likes cause she's cute, but like, <laughs> they're not about to get like, oh, I see you out here working. But like, I understand that it's work too. Right. Right. And so it's like, people are working every day. They just don't find, they don't believe that people value what they do. So right. they internalize that, well, no one values what I do. So I talk about what I do. And that's why, like, there's some, there's people I, I, I'm around where I don't know what they do because the way they've talked about it as almost as if nothing. And then you, then you find out, oh, yeah, I'm a chemical engineer. Like, wait, what? Yeah, you know, I'm a, and I'm like, wait, what do you do? And they're, and then until they see that excitement, then they go, oh, snap, what I do is pretty cool. But it's like, there's people around us every day that have dope things they're doing. Right. That they're not thinking about as dope because it's like, well, it's not what Jay-Z is doing or it's not what other people deem cool to be doing. Like, I got a lot of friends. I got a friend who's a geneticist, like dealing with ge- like genes all the time mm-hmm. and like tracing roots and stuff like that. And she, she's like, she galvanizes it. But before she did, it was like, it was hard for people to care because she wasn't giving out the mm-hmm. passion of why she cared. And so like, to your point about like this old idea of like the way we have to look like showing up. And that's usually 
like that. Not, and I'm going to say slave mentality, not in that whole like hotep, like this is what we do for the man. But I think that is slave mentality is really thinking for someone else. Right. And it's like, how can I think, how can I make someone else happy? As opposed to like, no, what brings me joy? And let me center myself. Let me center my joy and my values first. And then let that radiate outward as opposed to internalizing what someone else might be thinking or might not be thinking. And then like, let me give you what I think you value. It's like, nah, that that mentality is the mentality that this con- this country operates on. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's what allows us to be exploited because we're not thinking about like, no, this is actually not valuable to me. Because it's like, all right, cool. Like you sat there, you traveled 20 times, like you traveled across the, the globe, but were you present for any of those trips? Right. Right. Like, were you worried about looking like you were traveling or were you really traveling? Right. Meaning like, can you tell me what you learned while you were there? Did you do anything you wouldn't have done here? A lot of some of my friends can't think they don't have that story because they would do everything they would do in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to look like they were on the go, but they weren't really going anywhere. And so like that whole narrative of like, once again, I think it's that linear narrative of 2020 is going out. Listen, I wish 2020 meant my credit score get reset (laughs) and we could get like just everything that we get a whole year to do things things over. Mm-hmm. But it's like whatever I went to sleep with on December 31st I'm waking up with on the on the on the first. Right. Right? So I don't even see it as new year. It's like it's another day. it's another day, it's another year Absolutely. to do what I've always been doing. And I think that if people change their relationship with that even, I think that anxiety about the end of the year won't, because it's like, it's the end of what? Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you late to getting back to your daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I, mean, I mean, I was already in it. I, I, like, I'm, I'm going to give you the time if I'm here. So um, tell tell the people where they can find you and find Literary Swag online. So you can find me at Yadon on Instagram, Yadon Ezra on Facebook, Yadon Ezra um, on Twitter. Literary Swag Book Club uh, is an Instagram uh and literaryswagbookclub.com. You can sign up and join. It's $35 a month. You get the book every month. You get Martinelli's. We have the writers coming. We've had everybody from Margot Jefferson, who won a Pulitzer, to Dapper Dan. So we we do a we do an expansive reading list. And the membership looked like a United Color Benetton's app, and nobody paid for that. We just put that work in <laughs> to get that room to look the way it does. Love it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. All right. To our audience... We got a lot of readers who listen to this show. So okay. check out Literary Swag Club online. Yeah. Check out your Don. Yeah. You got some interesting views on things. I enjoy this. Thank you. Thank you. I would definitely, if you got a lot of readers, um, I think a book that I think a lot of people should read uh, is definitely uh, from this, from from what y'all do's perspectives, mm-hmm. Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Um, I think that's a good book to read because a lot of people see what Nike is now and think that's what Nike's always been. Yeah. A lot of people don't know Nike was a mom and pop shop for 20 years. And by that, what I mean is every year the lights were going to get cut off. Mm -hmm. And they were understood the lights were going to get cut off for 20 years. And I think that people want to skip that, not understanding, though. Like, that's what it is. That's the work. And the fact that Phil Knight was so adamant about the process of Nike as opposed to the result of Nike, I think that that's a book that, like, everybody should read in terms of, like, quote-unquote self-help because the best help you can give yourself is understanding that growth is a process and not a destination. And that is a great place to end on. All right. To our audience, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight. Yeah. The founder of Literary Swag. Yeah. Recommended it. That means it's a good read. It's Gotta be. Gotta be. All right. Uh, remember, like, share, subscribe to this episode. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. 
You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.